You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. And I'm here with Yitzchak Kolakowski, who, of course, is the head of chaplaincy in Weimart Prison. Much more than that, he's really the whole kit and caboodle there in terms of running religious programming. And, of course, he has a, a great staff that works under him. And Yitzchak, of course, joins us here every week. This week, we actually have sort of a follow-up to one of our program that we did a couple of, about, it was about a month or two ago with Andrea Lyon, the Angel of Mercy of Death Row, and she spoke to us really in depth about the inequity of capital punishment and how it's effective in the United States, and uh, we had a very, very uh, important discussion, and that that episode is available on our site. It's gotten hundreds and hundreds, uh, maybe even thousand downloads, and one of the people who actually listened to the program I've been in contact with, and someone who um, was very, very honored that uh, he was impressed by what he heard, and been in contact about actually sort of appending an aspect to the death penalty inequities in terms of criminal justice, and that is a adjunct professor, associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh, but actually more important in our mind, the assistant federal prosecutor. Tell me what it is again, Marshall. I'm an assistant federal public defender in the Capitol Habeas Unit of the uh, Federal Defender's Office in Pittsburgh. Now, come on, that is a mouthful unless you have it written in front of you on the screen. But yes, you are part of the Federal Public Defender's Office out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So even That's though it. it's Pittsburgh, it's not really connected to the city of Pittsburgh and not connected to the state of Pennsylvania, but it's that federal area of that Allegheny section, I guess, right? That's correct. And Marshall, you listened to our episode, and we spoke about how you can actually add to our understanding of some of that inequity, specifically, not only from your knowledge of how this is happening throughout the United States, but actually through your involvement in a a very celebrated case, a case that was the subject of many, many articles. And even, as you told me in a previous conversation, actually a uh, a CNN television reportage about Henry McCollum and Leon Brown, who were exonerated after 30 plus years of being convicted on a a horrible rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl in North Carolina, a state that you lived in for for many years. And you were part of, I guess, of his appeals team? Actually, I was a third lawyer on his trial team when he went back to a, for a retrial in the early 1990s. Right. The, the original conviction and arrest was in, in 1983 or something, right? I, the crime occurred in, uh, I think, in 1984, as I recall. Uh-huh. And he was originally convicted and sentenced to death. But the North Carolina Supreme Court overturned his conviction and the conviction of his brother, Leon Brown, because the trial judge had made an error in the instructions that judge gave to the jury. So we're going to get to the whole story in a minute. Your involvement started, though, in the 90s. So you were part of that retrial, and you were part of the team that was defending him at that retrial. And just to, like, you know, to get to the end and then go back to the beginning, in 2014, I believe the DNA evidence that was unavailable back then was able to clear his brother and himself, and they had been uh, incarcerated for 30 years, 
maybe even 31 years, I think. And this case was highly publicized and celebrated. And you were at the center of it. And part of the reason why you wanted to talk to us from the way I understood was, was because to highlight some of the issues that the Brown-McCullum case brought up, things that we didn't really speak about in our discussion with Andrea Lyon a couple of months ago. And it had to do, I'll just set the table and then I'll let you take it from there, Marshall. The fact that this case, the case that you were involved in, was a case that implicated and, and came down on persons who were mentally incompetent, persons who we would call developmentally disabled, and also there was another element that you thought was interesting to explore, and I agreed with you, which is the fact that there was a coerced confession and also a confession that was made under what some people would just say is just an offhand statement to reporters, but you understood was actually almost like the type of statement that was also like a coerced statement, a statement that they made to a television reporter. So why don't you set the scene for us again and tell us and walk us through it? Sure, be glad to. So Henry McCollum and Leon Brown were from uh, Jersey City, New Jersey. And they were in North Carolina visiting family. And it's important to mention that because it's not uncommon for people who get sentenced to death to be not from the community that they're in. It is much easier to dehumanize someone and to sentence someone to death if that person is not part of your community, if you don't know their family, if their mother or aunt or uncle isn't a teacher at the school or the owner of the hardware store down the street. If they're not part of your community, it's easier to distance yourself from that person. And so that's an important thing to know. They were quite young too, right? Leon was 15 and Henry 19 at the time of this offense. And what the offense was, was an awful, just awful rape and murder of an 11-year-old girl named Sabrina Bowie, who was from Red Springs, North Carolina, which is in Robeson County, right there on the border between North Carolina and South Carolina along I-95. Um, a lot of people might drive through there on their way to Florida. Well, they're going to stop in South Carolina to get fireworks, I think. And stop at the south of the border, the <laughs> south of the border motel, which everybody knows from all of the uh, all, all right. of the signs. Yes, yes. Um, Somewhere in, in, the, in the hell that is reserved for these billboarders, <laughs> they're going to have to answer for all that, all that beautiful scenery being covered up by, by all those billboards. But yes, we all know I, when, when we were kids, we all stopped there and, and, and got a bunch of firecrackers to, to take with us. But yes, it is, a, it is a pretty, it's a rural stretch of highway, right? Exactly. Not exactly the Champs-Élysées and it's a small town, Red Springs, Right. It's a very, very small town, rural farming community. And indeed, where this little girl, Sabrina, was found was in a soybean field. She had been raped and murdered. Her death was by way of strangulation. Her underwear had been shoved down her throat with a stick, and that is what caused her death. And obviously, when this occurred, Marshall, there was an uproar. She was a Black girl, but I would assume the authorities there were, were the police white? Yes. By and large, the, the power structure in, the, in that county is all white. Although it's a, Robeson County is, a, is an interesting county demographically. It's about one-third white, one-third black, and one-third Lumbee Indian. 
Mm, interesting. But still, as you say, most of the people calling the shots and obviously the outrage probably went throughout the community, but the police uh, who were investigating and were obviously pressured to solve the crime and find the perpetrators. Of course, you know, when, it, when, a, when an 11 year old girl is raped and murdered and she dies beat by strangulation uh, in that way, that's going to be uh, a highly publicized crime. And, you know, it's a small community and everybody knew about it. And, and I believe there was some young schoolgirl who noticed these two brothers around and, and somehow in a very flimsy fashion, sick the police on them. At least that's from what I was reading. No, that's that's exactly right. So they had a couple of people who said, oh, you know, these guys. And let me make clear, Leon Brown was tested to have an IQ of about 55. Uh, Henry McCollum, uh, his older brother and my client, was tested to have an IQ of about 66, 67. So because of their intellectual disability, they didn't exactly fit in with people of their own age. They acted much more immaturely than people of their own age. And so consequently, when, when the police were asking around, is there anybody that you think is a little strange, a little off? Of course, Henry and Leon were identified. And I think that's how they got identified to the police. And their mom was down there with them, but they were picked up by the police and brought in for questioning. That's correct. Henry was taken into custody and taken into interrogation and kept in custodial interrogation for roughly eight hours. Uh, during those eight hours, he was crying and telling the police he didn't know what they were talking about and he didn't kill anybody. And, you know, police interrogation methods, you know, there's a technique called the read technique. You all might have talked about this on one of your shows. I don't know. But it's a very accusatory method that uh, intimidates people in an attempt to get them to confess. That's the intent of this method of interrogation. And so they kept telling Henry, you know, he was going to be prosecuted and he was going to be sentenced to death, but that it might go easier for him if he would confess. He kept saying, but I didn't do anything. I just want to go home. And uh, finally they said to him, well, if you'll sign this piece of paper, you can go home. And so eight hours into this custodial interrogation, Henry McCollum signed a statement admitting to the rape and murder of Sabrina Bowie, along with three other young men. And he got up to leave. And they said, where are you going? And Henry said, well, you said if I signed this piece of paper, I could go home. And they said, well, you can't go anywhere because you've just confessed to committing a, a rape and murder and you're going to be arrested and prosecuted for first degree murder. Today, Marshall, and again, we'll get to the rest of the story as it goes on. Today, are these interrogations recorded? I mean, I seem to remember on some television police procedurals that I've seen that they now turn on a tape recorder when they do it. Was that that was that that wasn't the case in 1984, was that? So sometimes parts of interrogations were taped even then, but not the entirety of the interrogation. So 
you know, the police would turn on the tape recorder when they wanted to turn it on and they turned it off when they wanted to turn it off. And I've seen dozens and dozens and dozens of cases like that. There really are lots of high profile cases where there have been false confessions, including, you know, the very famous case of the Central Park Five, where there were five young men who were accused and ultimately convicted of awful rape uh, of a central, you know, the jogger in Central Park. But the Central Park Five were all convicted of this terrible rape in Central um, And as it turns out, all of the confessions were coerced. So is there a mandate to have interrogations recorded? And doesn't it make sense that there should be such a, uh, a federal statute to, to have all interrogations? Just the same way we have body cams now, it would seem that's even more important. So there has been a move over the last, I would say, decade or decade and a half to try and, and uh, require that. But every state, you know, gets to make their own decision. And sometimes it's not even those decisions are not made at the state level, but they're made at the local level. Um, there's no federal statute that requires it. Some states do, some states don't. Some localities do, some localities don't. So what happened was, and, and, and Leon, who was four years younger, uh, did, did they get a confession from Leon as well? Yes. And once the, the state had this confession, was there a, a jury trial for Henry and Leon? Yes, there was a jury trial in 1984, I think, 84, 85. And they were both convicted. And as I, as I said earlier, the North Carolina Supreme Court overturned those convictions on the ground that the trial judge's instructions were erroneous. And so initially, both of them were sentenced to death. But I think, I could be wrong about this, but by the early 90s, North Carolina had said that 15 was too young for a capital case. And so Leon was not tried capitally uh, the second time, but Henry was tried capitally. Now, this gets into uh, an issue that I know you have quite a bit of expertise on, and, and I think it's worth expanding on. Did the initial defense team, and you weren't part of that, didn't they bring up mental incompetence or the developmentally disabled status of the two brothers? Was that put into as, as part of the defense? I mean, was it held? I mean, you, you, you mentioned their IQs. It seems that that should have been a mitigating factor right there. Well, it certainly was presented when I was part of the defense team. That was central to our presentation, not just at the penalty phase. And let me explain for, for the listeners that capital trials are done in two parts uh, in the United States. First, there's a, the, the trial about whether someone is guilty or not guilty of the offense of murder. And then if, if the person is convicted of first degree murder or capital murder or whatever the highest degree of murder is in that particular jurisdiction, then there's a second little mini trial in front of the same jury on the question of whether the punishment should be life or death. And what we did, and I guess it was 1992 when this was tried, I believe, what we did in 1991 or 92, when, whenever we did that, that second trial, is that we put on evidence of Henry's uh, developmental disabilities, not at just at the penalty phase, but actually at at the guilt-innocence part of the trial. And the reason we did that is that under North Carolina law and under the law of, in many, many jurisdictions, in order to be convicted of first-degree murder, the state has to prove 
that the murder was after premeditation and with deliberation. And those two words have legal meaning. Premeditation means you need to have, for however short a period of time, thought about it before you committed the offense. And deliberation means for however short a period of time, you had to have thought about the consequences of committing this act. And our argument was that because of Henry's developmental disability, he was incapable, frankly, of deliberating. And therefore, the worst he could be convicted of was, under North Carolina law, second-degree murder, which is malice murder, but not murder with specific intent to kill, and therefore he would not be eligible for the death penalty. Do you follow me? 100%. Okay. So we began putting on evidence of his developmental disability even before the trial started. We tried to have his confession suppressed because we argued to the judge. We put on the testimony of a, of a uh, clinical psychologist whose area of expertise was developmental disabilities. And we put on a clinical psychologist to testify that Henry would not have understood the Miranda warnings. Basically, you have to have a sixth grade or higher level of education to understand the Miranda warning. So in other words, if you waive your Miranda rights, then you go on and you have a discussion or a coercion, whatever you want to call it, with the police, and then they can, they can try you. But prior to that, and if you haven't waived your Miranda rights, then anything that you say afterwards cannot be held against you, right? Well, that's correct. But in addition to that, in addition to that, you have to be able to waive those rights, right? You have to understand what it means to waive your rights. And our argument was that because of Henry's developmental disability, he thought the word waive meant what you do when you're saying hello to somebody. He had no understanding that the word wave meant to give up one's rights and that he couldn't have understood the rights that he was being read. He, he just didn't have the capacity to understand that. Right. So that should sort of like, as we would say in, in Hebrew, passel the confession. That should make that the confession is really, whether he understood the confession or not, that should already cause the confession to be dismissed. Correct? I think that's right. And, you know, that's the problem with these high profile cases is that there's tremendous pressure on elected judges to not suppress evidence because they don't want to be blamed by the voters. So you have a, you know, you had a, we had an elected judge who we were arguing, you should, judge, you should suppress this confession because Mr. McCollum because of his developmental disabilities, he doesn't have the capacity to understand his Miranda rights, and he couldn't knowingly and intelligently waive them. And that's what the United States Constitution requires, that you are able to knowingly and intelligently waive your rights. And of course, there was no attorney or anyone representing him there. It was just the two boys. That's right. Well, in, in fact, they were interrogated separately. Separate, I understand. But there was no one even there to, to advise them or to be an advocate for them in any way, shape, or form. That's right. Now, was part of your argument also that, not just on technical grounds, like that he is incompetent to stand trial or that he didn't know what it means to waive rights, was part of your argument also that you were saying that he was not 
And we know the DNA evidence, as I've already spoiled the surprise, showed that he wasn't. But was that part of your argument also, that he was not the perpetrator? He and his brother had nothing to do with this Sabrina Bowie's death? It wasn't. And the reason that it wasn't is that in addition to the confession that he signed as a result of this custodial interrogation that took place over eight hours, in addition to that, after one of his pretrial court appearances, he was in the back hallway of the Robeson County Courthouse, and a, and a television reporter from Raleigh had access to that back hallway and stuck a camera and a microphone in his face and said, did you do it, Henry? And Henry said, no. And the reporter asked again, did you do it, Henry? And Henry said, no. And the reporter said, what did you do, Henry? And Henry said, I just held her arm. Now, Henry was trying to exculpate himself, but as, you know, as a man with intellectual disabilities, he didn't realize that it, by saying that, he was actually inculpating himself in this offense. And he was just, you know, he was put in an uncomfortable situation by this reporter. He, his lawyer wasn't there standing there. His lawyer, you know, there was nobody there to say, he has nothing to say, no comment. And he made this statement. He blurted out, I just held her arm, which wasn't true. He didn't. But he felt like he needed to say something to get this reporter to leave him alone. So that's what he said. So we were confronted with both his custodial statement and also this other statement in which he inculpated himself in this crime. You know, this really brings up the other issue, which is whenever anyone speaks, not as a person confessing, but actually makes a statement to paparazzi or, or any sort of reporters, how significant do those statements carry weight at a later trial? We always say you're under oath and that means something. The reverse should also be true. Sometimes, you know, you remember, of course, the, the Frazier-Ali fight, I'm sure. I think it was 1970 or 71, the first one, where Frazier uh, and, and Ali, and if you remember the types of things Ali was saying about Frazier, right? And all that stuff was just to, to, to get his goad, right? People always talk and say things, right, to get attention or to say stuff. How much weight do these, do these statements carry? And should they really carry weight? You know, regardless of the, the mental issue, this mental state issue, it would seem that these type of statements should not be considered uh, confessions or, or things like that. Is there a precedent in law uh, or telling us what to do when someone goes out there and makes these type of statements, how, how much they can be used against them? They can always be used against them. When people make inculpatory statements, in fact, the system thinks, well, if you said it, you're the best reporter of what happened, Right. And so the fact that Henry said to this reporter, he denied twice that he did this crime, but then when asked, what did you do? And he said, I just held her arm. Then by doing that, he inculpated himself in this criminal enterprise. Now, you said before there were other, uh, there were other young teenagers, other people there. Were they ever brought into trial? I mean, the two, besides the two brothers, you said there were other kids. The story that the police had was that there were four boys who raped and killed Sabrina Bowie. 
And the statements that Henry and Leon signed named all four boys. Okay, they named themselves and they named two other boys. What happened to them? So those two other boys were brought in, but of course they didn't confess. And so there was no evidence to tie them to this other than Henry's and Leon's statements. Did they uh, point the finger at Henry and Leon, those other two boys? They just said, well, we don't know what you're talking about. We weren't there. We had nothing to do with it. I don't, we, we don't know who was there. And as it turns out, by the way, they weren't there. Yes, of course not. And neither was Henry or Leon. None of those boys were there. Just so that the listeners know, there was another man from Robinson County. He had already been convicted and sentenced to death for the rape and murder of another woman. Right. So you were saying that there was actually a, another person who was on death row later, a fellow by the name of Roscoe Artis. And he, of course, is the one who we know he raped and strangled an 18-year-old woman while the brothers were awaiting trial. And he was convicted of that crime. And based on what I read in the New York Times, he was investigated in the Bowie case, but the DA never told your team about this Roscoe Artis. That's exactly right. We had no idea. And so back in 2014, when DNA evidence was finally available. So basically you, basically you guys were unsuccessful in your cope to clear him of this murder charge. And he was supposed to be executed. Um, Henry was supposed to be executed. And Leon was supposed to have life in prison. And in the 90s, when you were part of that retrial, tell us what happened. Before we get to the fact that we know they were released, you sent three uh, psychiatrists or psychologists up to the stand to prove, in your mind, and for the jury, that he was mentally incompetent, correct? Well, what we did was that we decided, based on the two statements, the custodial interrogation and the statement to the TV reporter, that the jury would believe that Henry was guilty of some level of homicide, that he was involved in this rape and murder of Sabrina Bowie. And so what we, what we hoped to do was to convince the jury that Henry was incapable of deliberating and therefore not guilty of first degree murder under North Carolina law, and therefore not eligible for the death penalty. But failing that, if we were unable to convince the jury to convict Henry of a lesser included offense of second degree murder, that at least at the penalty phase, we could convince the jury that life rather than death was the appropriate sentence because of his developmental disability. As it turned out, In 2002, the United States Supreme Court ultimately concluded that the Eighth Amendment prohibits the execution of someone with developmental disabilities. And so ultimately, I believe Henry would have been released from death row and resentenced to life imprisonment based on our presenting this evidence of his developmental disability. What happened at the time, though, Marshall? What happened when you, uh, in the 90s, when you presented it? What was the jury's ruling. So the jury found this crime to be so heinous that it convicted Henry of first degree murder and sentenced him to death. And there must have been some appeals or something that staved off his execution, correct? In almost every state 
in fact, every state that I know of that has a death penalty, there's an automatic appeal to the state Supreme Court or to the state's highest court that deals with criminal cases. And so he had his appeal to the North Carolina Supreme Court. And then he was able to perfect other appeals that challenged the legality of his conviction and or his death sentence. And all of that was going on in in his case when DNA evidence became available. And what happened was that his brother, somebody who was incarcerated with his brother, Leon, wrote the North Carolina Innocence Project. The North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence is what it's called. And they said, we think that, that this guy is innocent of this crime. And the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence began investigating the Sabrina Bowie murder. And by the time they got involved, DNA evidence was available. And they went to the, they actually went into the bowels of the Robinson County Courthouse and were clanging around in the basement and found these dusty beer cans that had been uh, at the crime scene. And they found these cigarette butts that had been found at the crime scene. And they asked to, uh, to get them tested. And, uh, and they also asked for uh, discovery. And by that time, Joe Freeman Britt was no longer the district attorney. And there was another man who was the district attorney. And he was much more open about providing discovery. And so that's when the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence found out that there were other suspects, including Roscoe Artis. And then 30 years had passed, and still the cigarette butts were in a pristine enough condition that DNA vestigial particles could be taken from them. That's, that's quite incredible. So that saliva from the cigarette butt, it's not that they were in pristine condition or anything, it's just... That stuff stays on for 30 years. I mean, we're talking about it was and it was in a ditch on the side of the road. Right. And there were cigarette butts around her that still had the DNA marker that could be traced to Roscoe. Exactly. And so they ran the DNA and they and they matched it. Well, first, it didn't. The first thing they found out was it did not match Henry or Leon. Right. And then. They had to figure out, okay, what database do we want to try and use? And they tried to match it to the database of other offenders in North Carolina. And of course, we know now that Roscoe Artis was another offender. He had committed another rape and murder of a woman, and he was in the North Carolina Department of Corrections. And so they had his DNA on file. And lo and behold, the DNA evidence from those cigarette butts matched Roscoe Artis. And so when he was confronted with this, he admitted that he committed that crime. And you know, today we're so jaundiced by how we take it for granted, how DNA is always, evidence is always available. Like with CSI and all the television programs have made us think that, of course, DNA has always been around. And, and we know that's not the case. I mean, sans his confession, that was coerced, there was no physical evidence tying the brothers, Leon and Harold, to, to Sabrina Bowie's death. There was, no, there was no physical evidence tying Henry or Leon to this crime. That's exactly right. 
and even though there probably was, you know, semen and other things on Sabrina's body in, in the 80s, there was no way that that could have been, I don't know, I guess they didn't preserve that. Or they didn't keep that in some baggie. They didn't think that could help them because there was no way to match it with Henry and Leon. Right. Now, when he was cleared, and obviously this was a great event and it was widely reported, what was your part in that other than being part of his defense team in the 90s? Did you have anything to do with pushing, uh, you know, for the DNA evidence or for, was, was that in your purview? It really wasn't, although, although I did have a mild connection that I'll share with you. I was on the faculty of North Carolina Central University Law School for five years. I taught constitutional law and uh, trial practice and appellate practice and other things. And while I was there, I was the faculty advisor of the Law School's Innocence Project. One of my students was a, a woman named Sharon Stellato. And Sharon, when she graduated, actually went to work for the North Carolina Center on Actual Innocence. And so she, my former student, Sharon Stellato, is one of the two lawyers that actually proved that Henry and Leon were not guilty of the crime for which they were committed. So I, I would say that you had, uh, you were definitely p- part of it and involved. And I know that the postscript to this, I know you did get involved uh, last year, about a year ago, in terms of the the civil case that was brought by Henry and Leon against the state of North Carolina and I guess the sheriff's department of, in, in that county, uh, a civil case which resulted in a very generous reward. I guess I don't know if it's generous considering the amount of their life that was taken away, but it sounds pretty pretty hefty. A seventy-five million dollar award that was split between the two brothers. Well, you know, and I, and I don't want to make this a long story, but their victimization continued even after they were exonerated. They were each pardoned by the governor of North Carolina. And as a result of those pardons, each of them was awarded $750,000. An unscrupulous lawyer from Florida came up and said, look, if each of you gives me a quarter of your money, I'll represent you in a civil suit. And so this unscrupulous lawyer ended up taking an awful lot of that money, that $1.5 million that they were awarded from the governor as a result of the pardons that they got. And in addition, he got them to sign a contract that he was going to get 40% of anything that got recovered, plus expenses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that they were likely to end up with very little of any money that came out of a, out of a civil judgment, whether it went to trial or whether it was negotiated. There was a negotiation. And the negotiation had to be approved by a federal judge in North Carolina. And when the federal judge saw what that unscrupulous lawyer was getting, he said, I'm not signing off on this and refused to allow that negotiation to conclude and basically brought bar charges against that lawyer. So then a big firm from Washington, D.C. came in and said, will represent Henry and Leon pro bono. And because of the pandemic, the trial was put off for quite a long time. But in May of last year, the case went to trial in federal court, a wrongful conviction lawsuit, civil lawsuit, 
against the Red Springs Police Department, the Robeson County Sheriff's Department, and the State Bureau of Investigation, the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. So there were three defendants and several of the officers individually, by the way, in addition to the institutions. And all told, part of it came from negotiations and part of it came from a trial. But all told, Henry and Leon were ultimately awarded a total of $75 million. You know, whether or not it's worth 31 years in the maximum security prison, I don't know. But what I do know is that they're never going to want for anything for whatever time they have left. Thank God. And you were brought down in order to testify about your role and about what you knew about the case. That's correct, because the the state had failed to disclose to my co-counsel and myself exculpatory evidence that they were duty-bound under the Constitution to disclose. Because they didn't disclose that evidence, we made the strategic decisions that we made. Had we gotten the evidence that we were supposed to get, had we known about the exculpatory evidence, had we known about the investigation of other people like Roscoe Artis, the likelihood is we would have put on a defense that Henry was not guilty of this of, of this crime. I have a question. Why did there need to be a pardon from the governor if, if they were found innocent in the trial? So they weren't found innocent in the trial. What happened was a court found that there was no evidence to warrant their conviction. And so a court overturned their conviction. But under North Carolina law, and this is true in many, many states, in order to be able to get compensation, you actually have to get a gubernatorial pardon. And so the the purpose of seeking the gubernatorial pardon was to get them some compensation. Because these were, you know, two young men who were intellectually disabled, were poor when when they were arrested, and certainly had no skills when they got out of prison to work jobs that were going to be able to um, supply them with their basic needs. Uh, Marshall, let's look, this is an incredible story. And obviously, connecting to this case, obviously, was very moving and important to you. What can we extract from it in terms of ways our system could still get better? I mean, we're not in the 80s anymore. But it seems like there's still the issues that this case raises those problems are still around in some form or another. So why don't we talk about, let's talk first about mental incompetence and developmentally disabled persons. Do you believe the way the system is now in 2022 that, and again, every state is different, as you say, do you still believe that too many developmentally disabled, mentally incompetent persons are put on trial and are sentenced when based on the 2002 ruling of the Supreme Court, they should not be placed onto death row because that's cruel and unusual punishment? Do you believe that's still the case? So you've asked a complicated question that I want to sort of take apart, if that's okay with you. One issue is, is the death penalty appropriate for people with developmental disabilities? In 2002, the United States Supreme Court said no, but Each state gets to define how you apply the Supreme Court's ruling, which was called Atkins versus Virginia. 
in which the court said that it violates the cruel and unusual punishments clause of the Eighth Amendment to sentence to death someone who has uh, developmental or intellectual disability. In Georgia, for example, the defendant has to prove his intellectual disability beyond a reasonable doubt. That is the highest standard known to our law. And as a consequence, it's virtually impossible for anybody to establish that they have intellectual disability in Georgia, even though they do. Why? Well, because, you know, the defense will bring in clinical psychologists who say, well, yes, this person tests out with an IQ of two standard deviations below the norm, which is roughly defined as about an IQ of 70 with a standard error of measurement of five points one way or the other. But another prong of the definition of intellectual disability is that you have to have uh, significant deficits in adaptive behavior. What does that mean? It means how do you deal with life on a day-to-day basis? Can you make change? Can you work a menial job? Can you get from place to place? Uh, Are you able to read? Are you able to write? Are you able to converse? You know, the state of Texas used to use a standard that the United States Supreme Court struck down because the the state of Texas was basically using the Lenny standard from John Steinbeck's of mice and men. And that's not the definition that clinical psychologists use. So, you know, let's say the defense brings in a clinical psychologist and says, yes, this person has significant deficits in adaptive behavior. Well, then the prosecution will bring in a clinical psychologist who says, well, yes, his, his, uh, his IQ score is 70, but he doesn't have the significant deficits in adaptive behavior that the defense says he does. So now you have a battle of the experts. And if the judge is, is trying to decide, have you proven it beyond a reasonable doubt, the judge is likely to say, well, no, I, I have a reasonable doubt because the state has brought in a clinical psychologist and says, well, yes, your IQ is in the intellectually disabled range, but you don't have the significant deficits in adaptive behavior. Did that happen in, in Henry and Leon's case? Uh, it did not happen. But there are some very famous cases in Georgia where that has occurred. There was an, another case in Florida where the experts came in and said, well, this gentleman's IQ is 73, and he definitely has significant deficits in adaptive behavior. And the the state of Florida, it had defined intellectual disability that you can't even begin to argue that you don't belong uh, on death row if your IQ is above 70. And the Supreme Court had to step in and say, well, wait a minute. All of the experts say that there's this standard error of measurement of five points either way. And Florida was disallowing the standard error of measurement. So states try very hard to exclude people from the category that would exclude them from the death penalty. In other words, they're trying to get more people on death row. And that happens all over the country. So even though we celebrate in many ways the United States, each state having you know, a different perspective and, and, and laws differently is, makes sense and is not having the government from above demanding, it seems like, and again, you know, Yitzhak, you might disagree here, but Marshall's story seems to argue for a more standardized definition that would seem to be fair because it's clear that persons who don't perceive the world should not, I mean, we know this from the Torah, of course, we're not going to use the Torah as a as a source here, but we know from the Torah and from Chazal that people who don't understand what they've done 
people who are classified as shota or people who are of diminished intelligence or capability should not be treated in the same way, even if they did commit this horrendous offense. So it seems like this is something that we, we need to address on some national way. I think, Marshall, you, you probably agree to that statement, correct? I do. We're moving in that direction. First, the United States Supreme Court said, well, if you have intellectual disability, you can't be among the worst of the worst. So therefore, you can't be sentenced to death. Even if you commit a horrible crime, the worst that you can be sentenced to is life without parole. Then the next step was, what about juveniles? Because what we know is that our brains, as human beings, our brains don't fully develop till we're about 25. And the part of the brain that develops last is the frontal lobe where the executive functioning gets done and where people have impulse control, right? So young people, people who are under 18, are more easily led. They're less able to control their impulses. They have less executive functioning. So the Supreme Court has now said, if you're under 18, you can't be sentenced to death. What's the next movement? Several states, including Ohio, and Kentucky have passed laws that say if you have serious mental illness, like schizophrenia, you're not eligible to be sentenced to death because people who have serious mental illness can't, again, can't be among the worst of the worst. Because why? Because they don't have the capacity for that sort of worst culpability of being able to deliberate. And we talked about deliberation a few minutes ago. I believe that the juveniles also cannot be sentenced to life. They can be sentenced to life, but there has to be an opportunity. They can't automatically be sentenced to life. They have to have be given an opportunity to present mitigating evidence as to why they should not be sentenced to life. So you're, you're right, Rabbi, at least partially right, that the United States Supreme Court has said you can't automatically sentence juveniles to life without parole. Now, you know, Marshall, the, the other subject which we touched on a little bit was you know, statements that you might make outside of court or outside, like this statement that Henry made that, no, I just held her down. I think that those statements, obviously, when they're made by someone of deficient mental capacity, clearly have to be seen differently. And I think it's, you know, one mistake led to the other. The fact that the jury did not see him as because they thought the crime was so heinous and they weren't willing to agree with your defense, that's another reason why they saw his sort of statement to the reporter from Raleigh as being so damning. We know that when people who are development disabled, even ones that are somewhat functional like Henry was within society, they defend themselves. They don't really understand what sometimes people are saying to them, like he's talking about waving, but even when someone wants something from them, unlike other people that are willing to dig their heels in and sort of have a real barn burner debate and say, wait, wait, you've got me wrong. People who are development disabled don't want to own up to that. And therefore they sometimes admit to what's happening because that's been their modus operandi. Uh, It takes a certain firm intelligence to be willing to erase the blackboard and say, you're starting from the wrong supposition about me. So I think that these two factors are really should be seen together. Once we determine, you know, a person is development disabled or doesn't, has limited capacity, 
across the board, we have to neutralize the things that he might have done, the things he might uh, have confessed to, and things he might have said. So I think it's really all it's all part of one thing that that, that probably needs a lot of work on, on on our part to create a fairer system. And you know, Marshall, this has been an incredible story, and there's a lot more to you that we haven't even gotten to. And, and I know that you recently presented at the Aleph Institute, which is where Yitzchok met you. And perhaps uh, we can get you to come back because we've really run out of time over here as far as this goes, because we sort of went with your lead story, but there's a lot more to you and to your experiences. And maybe we could have a part two a couple weeks down the road. If you would, if you agree to that, I think that would be great. I'd be honored. Thank you. So Yitzchak, I think that we, we, we have learned a lot, and just even from the story itself and from the horror and the tragedy that was Henry and Leon's life. And again, I think we could also marvel once again at how God has allowed us to understand the world so well that we can use the, the scientific advancements to be able to bring some sort of sense of justice. And, and we know that DNA evidence is really a wonder. And again, it should only be used in the, in, the, in the proper way to be able to, to explicate and to explain and to somehow restore. So that's about it, my friends. Marshall, I'm going to hold you to this statement that you've made here under, <laughs> you make it under oath, but we're going to get you back, hopefully back on to stir with love at a different time. Take care, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.